Oh, thank you. And thank you for uh, bringing that up because uh, at the beginning, you asked me to define myself. And then right after I did, I was thinking of the audience, right, of who was listening. And then, uh, and, and then right after we started in another topic, it's like, oh, we missed, we missed the most important part of, how I, of who I am. And that is, and that, and that is really, uh, you know, I, as my faith, right. And I, uh, belief in, in God, it, it, it affects everything I do, how I treat people, uh, why I'm doing this podcast, right. It's not because. Uh, I want to go and show off the cool stuff in compliant mechanisms because, hey, you know what? People may benefit. There's people listening to this that may benefit from the things that, you know, uh, that we've done. And we hope that that's the case and that the things that we do can help make the world a better place. And and I'll, I'll tell you, you know, even on the Mark Rober project where I said the stress that we had, but I'll tell you, I had as much uh, as many little pieces of inspiration or spiritual guidance on that project as any I've ever had. And which really surprised me because we're just making the world's smallest Nerf guns. But we, we, we end up in these, in these situations where we're having problems and, and feel that, that spiritual guidance. I'm a professor of uh, mechanical engineering at Brigham Young University and do research in compliant mechanisms and, and love to do, discover new things and work with new things, particularly doing that with students in, in the lab and, and having that opportunity to also help them have those experiences. So it looks first, how did you get to the combined mechanism? And I, I, I just told you that I printed the, I'm really fascinated about these designs and how did you get interested in designing this first compliant mechanism? Yeah, so, you know, as a young graduate student, I'd, I'd worked in the aerospace industry and had been designing new aircraft and things, and, and I just loved to do new things, but I wanted to be able to do more, and I decided to go back to graduate school. And ever since a kid, I'd grown up in, in you know, rural uh, in rural west in the Rocky Mountains, and I'd love to just go off into the mountains and hike and and I just find it really interesting. Anytime I could just even step somewhere where I would think, hey, no one's ever been here before. And that has just given me a thrill. And I've always enjoyed just doing things that have never been done before. And engineering, of course, was a way to do that uh, in a career. But then, uh, so I was going to graduate school and and talking to different faculty and I was walking down the sidewalk with uh, Professor Oshokman at Purdue. And he just started talking about this kind of crazy idea that, hey, instead of, you know, everything being rigid in mechanisms, you know, you could do something that is, you know, that, that could bend and move and get its motion and we can predict that. And that was just crazy at the time. Everybody, you know, flexibility was a bad thing that you're always trying to get out of your, out of your mechanical systems. And so, I don't know. I found that very intriguing. It was just a feeling uh, that I had that, hey, this would be a good path to go. And so, so we worked together and and on that during my PhD. And he was a, a wonderful, amazing advisor, a great mentor. And, and we got to do some just kind of start the field, coin some of the terms, and 
and things together. And it was, uh, that was a great start in this field. And, and even every few years in research, you know, I'd wonder, Hey, you know, is, is, is I've, have I, uh, if I ridden this horse into the ground, you know, it's compliant mechanism still got some go and it just keeps always, there's always new things, new areas we've been able to go into. It's been an exciting area. So. Mm-hmm. And maybe because at the time that she mentioned flexibility wasn't a good thing. It was like a criticism or people don't believe in what you do and you're supervisor at this time because he's a father of compliant. He considered to be one. Yeah. So, you know, the, Everyone that was working in mechanisms would consider flexibility to be bad. I mean, that, that gets, it causes, you know, you get vibrations, you have imprecise motions, you have everything. So there a lot of the goals were to get, you know, get uh, the flexibility out, and even particularly in robotics. And even many years later, I mean, the advent of soft robotics is really pretty new, but everyone's being a, uh, at a meeting at uh, at NASA JPL, and there's a bunch of people there, including a lot of robotics people, and, and you know, I bring up this idea of you know before the this before the term soft robotics had been termed, you know, I says, hey, you know, have flexibility. If you're going to have human robot interaction, you're going to need to have this flexibility. And everybody just thought I was nuts. I mean, they spent their careers in making everything rigid so you could predict its motion, and that flexibility caused nonlinearities. It caused you know, all kinds of, of problems. And at the time, that was just, yeah, you know, this is kind of a crazy guy. And until you could show that you could actually do some things that were really pretty cool. And and there are some people, as I was a grad student at Purdue University, uh, people started to see what we could do with this flexibility. You have this flexible blob that suddenly moves how you say it's going to move, and it's very predictable. And and yeah, many fewer parts. And anyway, some people started calling us the witch doctors of ME because we'd do these kind of crazy things that seemed kind of magical. And and you know, and so that was that was kind of fun and exciting. So yeah, I am first of all, I'd like to say thank you because you did amazing episode of Vertisium and Mark Rupert. So and also you have the design and and the website. So the elephant one. This is this is blow my mind. Just. <laughs> It's just, yeah, I, that I was just think it. Yeah, it just fixed it. So I, I just magical. It's just like. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. And that, that was one of the things where we're showing people that, no, we can, we can do, we can control this motion, right? And you do it in something that's kind of surprising. And, and then they believe you and say, oh, wait a minute. Maybe, maybe these guys are just crazy. Maybe you can do something, you know? So. Uh, yeah, so that's that's a lot of fun. Thanks. But how how do you? I think the question I was looking for design this, especially in robotics of robotics. Just how do you start the the first step to you have the rigid part like this one you already mentioned that you remove the rigid part. That is, I don't know how intuitive that you to come up with a design like let's do that. You know what I mean? That's the part I'm struggling to, the first initial thoughts to design medical designs that do something like the elephant while the trick, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's multiple approaches. Uh, we, uh, use something often called, uh, rigid body replacement, which is a place where we'll, we'll start with 
a you know node mechanism that is rigid parts and hinges or bearings or whatever, and and then we say okay now let's 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 go back and find ways to get that same motion but with compliance. So the so the gripper mechanism there that that you have is actually looks a lot like a pair of vice grips as far as where the points are because you get really really high mechanical advantage. So for small input force, you get a very large output force. And then you'll notice there are places where we just put, you know, the simplest idea, right, is to replace a pin joint with kind of a living hinge, we'll call it a, a very small length flexural, uh, you know, flexible segment. And, but then you'll also know another place where it doesn't have one of those and it has what we call a passive joint, which are two things just kind of rubbing against each other. And that's a place where there's a lot of compression. And we just said, oh, let's instead of having this flexible segment buckle, we'll have, uh, you know, put it into compression that way. Uh, and since then, we found lots of other ways to do compression and other things where we don't, you know, where we can do other things besides the passive joints. But, and so we'll often take rigid body mechanisms. So if you want high mechanical advantage, uh, you can't, you can't beat infinity, you know, an infinite, you know, I mean, and so, uh, so starting out with a rigid body mechanism that has that high mechanical advantage and that work backwards, uh, you know, it, it works really well. And then we've created something called the pseudo rigid body model, which, uh, has more, you know, more sophisticated ways of getting, you know, that, that motion of a pin joint simulated the motion of a pin joint with flexible segments. So that there's more than just a living hand. It's just is, you know, my lab. We've done a lot of that, but other other researchers around the world have added other, uh, you know, other pseudo-rigid body models that work. And so you get some really some interesting things that happen. And and so that's one approach. The other approach is just you know straight topology optimization, putting in your inputs and outputs. Say, hey, here's what I want. Here's what the input is, and you know, training that that algorithm to go find the best solutions. And, and there's been a lot of interesting work in that as well. It's not been the focus of our lab, but, but there's been some really uh, excellent work done by other researchers. Yeah, maybe some of them are obvious that to replace the rigid bars, but maybe the elephant one, I think what's interesting about it that sometimes maybe that's why guitars of robotics in simulation, you don't get the exact what happening when you have the mechanism. So. I'm curious when you start to think about the design, do you have intuition at the beginning or sometimes things could be surprising, counterintuitive in the design? Because it's, I'm just curious about this part and just to think, let's do that. And then there's something surprising happen in the design. Just Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's uh, the great thing when you're trying to do things that have never been done before, right? Is the, is how do you, how do you do that? The, and a lot of it is, uh, you know, there is some intuition and, and the, the challenge with compliant mechanisms is a lot of your intuition will lead you in the wrong directions because uh, engineers, typically when we design things, we're designing things to be both flexible or both uh, rigid and strong. And what happens is, uh, is people that start to to get this intuition that strength and stiffness is the same thing. And 
and they're not, you know, it's just that because you've usually tried to bake things that are both stiff and strong, most of the time, 90% of anything that you design, you want to be both stiff and strong. You start to equate those two and think that stiffness and strength are the same thing. And, and part of succeeding in compliant mechanisms is realizing that stiffness and strength are actually different things. And I can make something be both flexible and strong. So part of this is actually is changing your intu intuition, <laughs> which is really hard because there's a reason why you have that intuition because everything else you've designed has been both stiff and strong, and now you need to make something both flexible and strong. And and that's that's the thing is, and, and that helps you. It's not just the compliant mechanism, it's a lot of other things is, is finding these areas where intuition or the standard practice is something that, uh, where the intuition is based on some experiences that are not quite correct, they're not fully correct. And, and then challenging that and finding, you know, those things that you could, you know, that you can do. And that took, you know, I teach a graduate level class on compliant mechanisms. So that takes about, you know, three lecture periods of going through and proving this to the students, you know, all the equations and everything that yes, you can make something flexible and strong. And so, yeah, so in that design process, it's realizing that, hey, we have to change, you know, our intuition and look at things a new way and understand, uh, understand some of these principles. And then, you know, and then what are we trying to accomplish and, and finding, you know, ways to accomplish that. And sometimes we find other ways of doing it and then we convert it to a compliant mechanism. So if you see, you know, the Mark Rover project, you know, this is one where we just took a Nerf gun, uh, you know, a toy, 80, over 85 parts and got the function down to, to one piece, which, uh, you know, it's not quite a fair comparison because, you know, the Nerf gun has multiple fires as a single shot, but still, uh, and you know, that's, that's kind of crazy to think you replace 80, 80 parts by the one, one part. So I'll get this in detail, but, uh, because it's really interesting and uh, very, very interesting. But before going to this, you mentioned about inter interesting bar about the intuition like this being flexible and strong or strong for example strengths and it doesn't necessarily be stiff and strong and this is i think what is really interesting here what was the common or still the common thing to achieve this feature like is it the material is it the topology what what the thing is like most significant to achieve this goal you noticed in the designs yeah, so here's uh, here's a very key feature that's very, very important, and that is when a design is driven by a prescribed displacement rather than need to take a given load. So if I have a bridge or something that has to take a certain load, a certain amount of force, you want that to be both rigid and strong. If I design an aircraft wing, that's not meant to morph, you know, but is, uh, you want that to be stiff and strong, uh, or most structures. Uh, the difference is, is now if I need something to go through a certain motion, through a prescribed displacement, now that, it turns out the equations all change dramatically and people don't really appreciate that. And, and so let's take something very simple 
like the latch you use on a, a backpack latch. And when you push those two things into, you know, the, the two parts together and, and one of those, you know, has to displace to, to snap into place, that's a displacement-driven system because it has to undergo a certain displacement in order to function. That's very different than taking, oh, I want to take as much force as like, I'm going to stand on this. And it turns out that, that those two are very different. So now if I get in a situation where I'm going to take a, a specific displacement, go through a certain motion. Uh, so, you know, let's take uh, an example of a, a belt, you know, is something that needs to go through a lot of motion and but still needs to be strong and if you made that really rigid it's just not going to work it's not going to be a good belt you know and whether that's a you know uh you know a clothing belt or a or a belt on going through pulleys or or anything and so so that's the key is we're one of the keys there's there's a few but uh is if it's displacement driven instead of force driven, it'll be in that small category of com where compliant mechanisms just just rule. And uh, but ninety percent of the time, you do want it to be rigid and strong. So, uh, and then there's what we call a the toolbox of compliant mechanisms. The three things we have to manipulate are uh, the geometry. You know, if I make something thinner, it's uh, going to be more flexible, right? Uh, so geometry, uh, material properties, and in this case, we're looking predominantly at things with a low modulus of elasticity, a low Young's modulus, where in many, many things, people are trying to maximize the, the Young's modulus, so we try to minimize it, which is different. And then... Uh, and really, it's the ratio of strength to modulus. We're looking for a really high ratio there. And then the third thing is boundary conditions, which is how I'm how I'm holding it. So in my toolbox of compliant mechanisms, I really have three things that we have to work with: geometry, material properties, and and boundary conditions. And uh, that's that's what we have to to work with to succeed in those designs. Maybe I'll ask you in in your career if there is any unusual design like i don't know because you already mentioned you in other interview that like invert smd work was ud and you don't know if this already applied or not but do you have any design was quite unusual that you all stick to in mind for compliant mechanism yeah i mean it's it's fun you know we get into a new area like this and having uh you know just doing interesting things that that kind of warp people's minds, you know, of what you can do. So so one kind of rewarding things we're doing a project with NASA. They were we're looking at replacing some things in space uh, where, you know, you really don't want lubricants that'll outgas and have all kinds of problems and and you want to reduce the part count and and so we uh, we're working on that. We we created a device in titanium that when we went to show them, you know, at first, uh, you know, we showed them, and I, you know, showed the motion, it moved a few degrees, and everybody's, oh, okay, you know, that's cool. And then, and I took that same piece of titanium and, and moved it a, uh, 90 degrees each direction. And, you know, so 180 degrees of rotation. It's just hearing, 
you know, this room full of, of NASA engineers just gasp, you know, <laughs> and so it's just not how titanium is supposed to move, you know, and and that was that was a lot of fun. And uh, one other one I'll mention in a similar thing was, you know, those grippers you're showing. That was actually the very first compliant mechanism I designed. And so many years ago, and uh, but it's still a good demo. And I took the drawings to uh, to a shop. We were at a place where you know they didn't let grad students, you know, and you know f hurt themselves in the, with machine tools, you know. So you had to go into a professional machinist. That, and he looks at my drawing and asks what it is. And I say, okay, you're going to squeeze over here, and it's going to close over here. And he just looks at it and says, no, never going to happen. And and I've learned from experience that you need to listen to these folks because they have a lot of experience. And so I, I went back to my office. I went through all the equations, went through everything. I guess, no, this is going to work. And he built that. And then when he came to drop it off, you know, he came, uh, you know, I'm in the lab and I hear something drop and then somebody run out and close the door. And I thought, that's weird. I go over to see what it is. And, it, and it's that device. And, and I was right that he wasn't. So that's why he just dropped it off and ran. <laughs> and it was so satisfying to see that this did what I expected, what, I, what the equation said it would do, but that it really did it in real life. So, Yeah, I think oh, I want to go for the point about when you, for NASA proof, you already shared this, I think, about the, how rigid material. And I, this is one of the also design you have in your website. But of course, this is BLA. But the point I was curious about, if you have rigid parts and you have like more flexible part, how you deal with like failure or being susceptible to damage or durability? I don't know if this is something relevant, but I'm just curious for that. Yeah, no, that's, that is really a big part of what we do is how do you design plant mechanism that will survive the environment and particularly the life, you know, how many cycles uh, will this go through before it fails? And so, and, and is that is that enough? And so that is a big part of, of what we do in the design is creating compliant mechanisms that will go through, uh, you know, the number of cycles that it needs to go through. And so we have, uh, you know, that's a lot of what our work has been around is reducing, you know, stresses and in ways and, and, you know, getting these motions and then uh, you know, and a lot of analysis goes into it and testing. I mean, because people don't believe you and they shouldn't believe you, right? You need to test and demonstrate that what you have is right. So we have, we have our own custom design fatigue tester uh, that, you know, will test just, you know, a lot of wide range of compliant mechanisms. We can put a lot in at once and, and have this cycle and rotate and, and you know, have lots of cameras and sensors watching this because it, even at a cycle per second, going 24 hours a day, it, it can take a long time to get up to, you know, say a million cycles. Uh, but we have, we've demonstrated many compliant mechanisms that'll go, you know, over a million cycles and they're, you know, not very many applications that even, you know, need to go over say a few thousand cycles, uh, you know, unless you're in like rotating machinery or something, but, and so that's a big part of what we do. So it's a combination of all the design, analysis, and then the testing to confirm that. And we've done that even in, uh, you know, we had a, a pair of bike brakes that we designed and licensed uh, to a company and they were their high-end, uh, you know, high-end brakes for about five years. And, you know, that's a safety critical thing. If you're 
spike brakes fail, that's a bad thing, right? So we, you know, we designed that so that the fatigue life was, you know, much, much longer than was, you know, than was necessary, but still it's just for the safety. So, uh, and yeah, so that's, that's usually early on. I mean, people are believers, more believers now, but early on that was the biggest criticism and the biggest challenge was to have people believe that that was even possible. And because they had so many experiences of bending things back and forth and they break and it's like, yeah, that's how stuff breaks, but you could design it so that doesn't happen too. So, maybe before going to Mark Rubber project, I want to ask about the flexible mechanism. Do you always? It's a good idea to use two different material. I don't know, three materials, or it will be always good to use one material. Yeah. So, so the materials in general, we're looking for a high ratio of strength to modulus. So. Uh, my favorite material that I absolutely love is polypropylene uh, when we're doing plastics. And, and then when we go to metals, uh, beryllium copper, titanium, and liquid metal, you know, uh, uh, metallic glass, which is kind of an exotic material, but it's just rocks. And, uh, you know, high, uh, super elastic uh, nitinol is another one. So... So there are some really interesting uh, materials. Uh, so polypropylene and plastics, what's great about that is, is the material will just kind of flow. And so when, when you get the high stresses, instead of failing, it just kind of, just kind of flows. It says, ah, oh, yeah, I don't care. I'll just, you want me to go over here? I'll go over here, go back. At, or you can just get just enormous number of cycles out of polypropylene. I mean, it has some some challenges and that, you know, it'll take a set, you know, if you load it, it'll, what we call uh, stress relax. So if you put it in a certain position, it's strained, it'll, it'll stay in that position. And if you leave it there for long, and, and of course it melts like any polymer and, and, but, uh, so, uh, so it, but if you can use a plastic, it's easy to mold. You can make it any color. It's, it's really inexpensive. It's just this kind of magical material for compliant mechanisms. Uh, and then in metals, uh, you know, there's some that don't work all that well, you know, but depending on how large the deflections are. Uh, but uh, liquid metal is just this amazing material. Uh, it has some problems with fatigue life, so if you need some long life, but... Uh, you know, you've seen super elastic uh, night now where people make glasses out of it, but you could just bend it around to crazy shapes. And, and uh, that's also just really a, an amazing material. So I want to go for the Mark Ruber project. I think it's very fascinating. Uh, I think he was your student. If I remember, he said in the video, he was your student, right? Yeah, so he was, uh, he was a student at, in my uh, kinematics class, so a, a class where we teach people have, you know, designed machines and mechanisms. And so that was, yeah, about 20 years ago. So. And how this project, I, it's really fascinating, the idea that he, I, I, he needs to be just defined who he is, but I think the idea itself is very fascinating just to scaling down. I, there's a challenge, but it's crazy how the level of just going to this in his video. And I'm really curious about the nature of the cooperation. What were the challenges like? If you can share about the challenges to get to the objective, yeah. Yeah, so 
it was it was really interesting. There were a lot of challenges. So uh, this is really, it's, you know, we're built. This is kind of, you know, it's just for fun, right? Building the world's smallest Nerf gun. Uh, but at the same time, it was one of the most stressful projects I've ever done, you know, and which, uh, because, you know, anytime you're doing something that hasn't been done before, there's things that happen and you're not expecting and, and other things. And then, uh, and, and then usually you don't have tens of millions of people watching you, you know, at the end. And so that's also a little, a little stressful to get it right. Uh, but, uh, the, some of the challenges were, uh, you know, having a design that could scale, you know, down to all these different things and still look the same. Uh, so you can see it visually just getting smaller. And, uh, you know, as you think about like the squared cube law, which, uh, you know, which is once you scale something down by, you know, it, the mass actually goes down by a factor cubed. The, the surface area goes down by a factor squared. But other things scale in other ways. Your, your uh, uh, natural frequency for the vibration actually scales differently. The, you know, all the, you know, so stresses will scale differently. And so when you scale it down, this every, you know, everything's changing. And so how do you have the same... So this actually goes. We're gonna. We haven't published on this yet, but I'm. Uh, we're we're writing the working on the paper right now because it's just so fascinating. Uh, is what we discovered here. One of the things is is a way to design a compliant mechanisms is displacement driven. So if you look at that device, you pull it back to a certain point, and there's hard stops, okay, that that hold it, and there's the thing that, you know, with the trigger and other things. But what is interesting is we found a way to do that so the stress does not scale. So like the mass, you scale uh, the, the you scale the size down and you scale uh, the mass down by a cube. So factor change the scaling by you double it, you you increase the mass by a factor of eight. But here, what we've done is we've scaled this, we've designed it so that the scaling factor is one. If I make it half as big, the stress stays the same. If I make it 10 times smaller, the stress tames stays the same. And uh, that is a that is a non-trivial thing. And that's that's probably the, the single most thing that we want to show. Uh, the other thing we're gonna do, we didn't do, have it done yet, didn't do it in the video, is take that same design and put it in a, in a large, uh, you know, large sheet of polypropylene <laughs> and make it so it'll be about, you know, more than a meter long and show that it still works. So <laughs> we haven't done it yet, but, but we're, we're starting to, to get things together. But anyway, so that's, that's a kind of a fun, exciting thing. Uh, the other things, you know, early on I mentioned how fun it is to work with students and just having, you know, there's a big team of students working on different levels and doing all the finite element analysis, you know, the, the mathematical analysis and the fabrication and you get down to the micro scale and, you know, making stuff out of carbon nanotubes, you know, really? You're really going to do that? So, yeah, we're going to do that, you know. And it, it's just it's just a lot of fun, but but <laughs> but an interesting ride, so... How many months was this project? 
Yeah, it was nearly a year when he first called us and we started talking and we started, it was probably nine months where we were intensely working on it. And because we, you know, we didn't have the designs, so we had we went through a lot of iterations on the designs. And so, of course, when, you know, by the time you see the video, it's like, oh, yeah, here's this design, and we just scale it. You know, that's just not how the world works. So, right, you know, that, there are a lot of iterations, a lot of equations, a lot of other things, and just some very clever students and stuff, too, of coming up with. I mean, I, I started out with, you know, kind of the basic design, and and then the students worked on this, and you know, grad students had got, uh, you know, improved designs and more compact, and just kept getting better and better. And and you know, one of the challenging things though was that the microscope. You don't see it in the video at all, but uh, when we pull that trigger or we pull it back to cock it, is the thing would just come out of plane, you know, and. And we kept trying all kinds of different things to, to, to not have that happen and all kinds of fixtures, but then you put fixtures and it covers the mechanism and that's not going to work. Right. And cause you have to be able to see it. Anyway, all these iterations, it's just a simple, I mean, it's just simple Newton's laws. You, know, you need something to react to all these <laughs> forces. And anyway, we finally, after many iterations, so here's the scary thing for us. One of the things that was the most stressful is we've been working on this for like nine months and, the, and we did not, still did not have that smallest one working. And it was days, literally days before the film crew was coming and it still wasn't working. And, and finally, uh, by, uh, you know, literally miracles, you know, this, this all comes, this all comes together and we figure out that last piece and, and, uh, and it worked, but yeah, my, my stress level, you know, during some of that time was a little high. So maybe I want to ask about also the printer, because I think, um, in the video, I think you touched upon the printing also. I'm curious about the, to see the printer. Can you tell us? Because I think I have a super printer here, but I curious is not that's of course, as you have in the video, but can you tell us about the limitation of speed printing and what is the next thing or. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, so the 3D printing, you know, we're, you know, if you walked into our lab, you'd see, you know, a lot of 3D printers, different brands that we use for different things and, and at different times. And, and so the 3D printing uh, that we did at what we call a medium scale, we had the large scale, which is, you know, the same size of a Nerf gun, and then a medium scale, which is a, a tenth of that size. And that was, uh, that was 3D printed by uh, uh, a company that, you know, we were, we contracted with to get down to that size because they have a, you know, a unique process. And, and it was, uh, uh, yeah, it, it is, you know, cutting edge on, on the, on the sizes and everything, everything there. And they did, they did, uh, you know, very nice job. We went through a number of iterations, uh, there as well. And what is, what is the technology of the printer? Uh, can you tell? Yeah. Uh, so the, the micro 3d printing, uh, that was done at the, what we call the medium scale, which is, you know, the, the, what we call it the large scale, which is the regular size of a Nerf blaster. And then the medium was one tenth that size. And. You know, we worked with a company called uh, 
cortices or cortices, uh, but uh, and they do uh, uh, projection micro stereolithography technology to uh, to do that, and they get down to a ten micron resolution, and so that was uh, really really nice. We'd also done those in the carbon nanotube technology, which was kind of push you know pushing the upper limits of size of what we could do there. Uh, but it was just you know, it was cooler to show the three different technologies, right? The regular size, and then go to a medium size with the micro three D printing, and then go to the the small size with the carbon nanotubes. And so, so that was that was more interesting to show those. But that was and a company was was great to work with and a great help. So, Centricles, then I have a big question for you, maybe about the commercialization of the combined mechanism. Where do you see the future of like commercialization compliant mechanism now? And what use cases also? The use cases, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Now, so what's interesting about that, uh, you know, I, I teach a, a class on compliant mechanisms and I give the, the students uh, what's called a notebook assignment they keep throughout the semester. And it has uh, three three parts to it. One is... They need to find things that are compliant uh, and, you know, things that require flexibility to perform their function. And, and then, uh, you know, and then the other things are things that are not compliant that could be. And then the third thing was, is just, you know, stuff for their design and their project and things. But that first part, I watched it over the last, you know, 30 years <laughs> go from, from this, you know, just a wild, crazy thing in a lab uh, uh, to, you know, students really have to look or what they'd look, they'd find things in nature everywhere that's compliant, right? And your heart or your lungs or an elephant's trunk or a tail or, you know, there's so many things, uh, but not a lot of products. And then over time, as, as we've gotten this information out, you know, you know, not just my lab, but the whole field has gotten this information out that that has got out that the you know made it into industry and people understand how to do this it's been fascinating to watch just the large number of of commercial products that are now compliant mechanisms and and you know there's different you know there's i'd say you know two big different big areas one is is consumer products where you just want to drive the cost down whether it's you know, uh, uh, something as simple as uh, packaging. You know, uh, you know, a lid on you know on something that's uh, one piece but still you know has bistable between two positions. Or uh, so some really simple things, but you're going to have really high volumes. Going to make lots, millions and millions and millions of them, right? Then compliant mechanisms make a lot of sense there. And then you see kind of what well, uh, other applications on the other end that are high precision. If you are to go into a clean room uh, where they're making, you know, integrated, you know, chips for, you know, computer chips with integrated circuits, you're going to start tearing apart the equipment. You're going to find they're full of compliant mechanisms and not the plastic ones, but, you know, these made out of uh, different uh, metals. And, and that's the way you get really high precision mechanisms because you're getting rid of the backlash and the wear and, and all those things. And so, so you see kind of this, this range clear on one side, 
ultra inexpensive, making it by the tens of millions to really high ad, high precision devices. And we're seeing, you know, more and more in between. And, you know, one of the recent things we've recently gotten into is this kind of origami inspired uh, compliant mechanisms where you have, you see origami that can fold up and do all these amazing things. Uh, you know, you th a lot of people think of origami and think of, you know, the crane or the, you know, or whatever they folded as a kid, which is cool. But modern or origami art is just has some really stunning uh, things that, that they do there. And because of that, uh, you look at that and say, wow, that's amazing. That's a single sheet of paper. That's a compliant mechanism. It's bending at the creases. And, and, but it was just stunning what these artists had done. And then you have also mathematicians starting to get into the arena and, and people like, you know, Robert Lang and Eric Domain and Tomohiro Tachi, who had done some really outstanding things in the mathematics, Tom Hall, and the list goes on. But anyway, and then you say, hey, there's some cool engineering things we may be able to do here. And... And so we uh, started to look at it from, you know, origami as a compliant mechanism. And that's just had all kinds of cool applications. So our projects now, you know, we have projects uh, with NASA, one with the Air Force, uh, one with the Space Force that are all uh, this idea of making things compact like origami and then deploy out once they get into space. And, and so that has, that have, you know, we've commercialized a bulletproof shield that can be very compact to be stored, say, in a police officer's car, and and then you know can deploy out the uh, you know bulletproof shields and large and and so there's uh, uh, that's another new area of compliant mechanisms that's just really fun and exciting and has you know a lot of potential. Yeah, so, maybe one a question. I still. Two question, but one of them: When compliant mechanism doesn't make any sense, like did you see people forcing compliant mechanism if things doesn't make sense to you? Did you encounter any situation like why? Yeah, yes. And so, really, if your if your goal, if you need to, your goal instead of taking you know needing to undergo a specified motion is to undergo you know to take as hard a load as possible. Uh, then, you know, that's probably not a great application. Uh, but even that's a little deceiving, you know, is we have to, I have to be careful there. I can say your knee, your knees an application is a place where it takes a lot of compressive load and it has the motion. Uh, but we had some early prototypes on a compliant knee to show that we could take a lot of compression with this compliant mechanisms. And, and we had we dropped that topic to go off and do some other things, but there's a professor at UCLA that's starting to do, uh, you know, do that work and do uh, things like knees and ankles and things which are highly, com you know, compressive. And so, uh, and so there are some, you know, some boundaries. But but really, if it's, uh, you know, if you're, you know, a bridge. You know, you don't want a compliant bridge. <laughs> but, uh, well, maybe a drawbridge, that'd be cool. But, uh, and, you know, aircraft wings, like I said, aircraft structures usually want to be stiff and strong. But even then, doing morphing wings to, to have both the, the lift and the control surfaces 
uh, you know, in one, so the Wright brothers, for instance, they, they created a, you know, their whole thing was wing warping, right? You see this in the Smithsonian that they have a display on that, where it was a compliant mechanism. And so the reason that aircraft aren't compliant mechanisms now are, uh, wings is because that's just way too hard to have, have both your control surfaces and your aerodynamic surfaces be the same thing. And now we have more chance of doing that because we have better materials, better computational things. But but there are some places still where compliant mechanisms are possible, but just too darn hard, you know, because we haven't figured it out yet. And, and our grandchildren will figure it out. So. Also, since so robotics, we speak about shape morphing. Uh, do you have any words about shape morphing tech in, in this mechanism, shape morphing to map to any shape? Well, yeah. Yeah, so shape morphing is just cool, right? So, I mean, you have another thing that's just kind of magical. And what is good about that, is, and I'll put the things like uh, metamaterials, uh, you know, where you're, uh, you know, doing, uh, you know, materials that have different behaviors, you know, to bulk size because of what you've done, you know, with usually compliant mechanisms you know, in, in groupings. And that's just an exciting area because there's a lot of things you can, you can do. And I, I saw a former PhD student of mine that's now in a company that, that did, uh, has done some stuff that, that has some real potential in bioengineering that is really kind of exciting. And so, yeah, there's a lot of potential potential there and you know what will happen is is you'll do a lot of stuff that's just cool but it doesn't have an application and and that's okay because it still teaches us a lot of things and then we'll find those they'll find those applications that matter and and you know any kind of new thing people will criticize you know things it's like oh that's just that's just you know weird weird stuff and it's like yeah but you still learn a lot from the weird stuff (laughs) and we'll find the right use cases for it so A couple of years ago, I was invited to be a keynote speaker at an international conference in London. This was a nice professional honor and a great opportunity to represent my lab and the university before an international audience. I was excited for the trip and made the typical preparations. I made my travel arrangements, prepared my talk, provided materials to people publicizing the keynote address, and even found directions on the London Underground so that I could attend church and see interesting sites in London that I would not seen before. The day came, my bags were packed, and I was on my way to London. And that is when I discovered that my passport was expired. My passport was expired. The conference had been advertising my keynote talk on their website for months. When conference attendees registered at the conference, they received a program that included my picture and biographical sketch. But I wouldn't be there because my passport was expired. What I thought was going to be a nice honor instead became one of the most embarrassing events of my life. I had done a lot of things to prepare for the trip, but I had neglected one essential thing. And because I had neglected that one essential thing, none of the other things mattered. 
The fact that I had counted out and packed just the right number of pairs of socks for the trip didn't matter because I'd forgotten something essential. It is easy in life to become busy with all kinds of things, even things that are important, but we have to be careful not to neglect those things that are essential. Otherwise, none of the other things will really matter. I, I watched a couple of videos for you, I think, 14 years ago about uh, your face, and I think this is not about sh the complete mechanism, but I found this is really, really interesting when you talk about face, and I loved that. I loved that so much and resonated so much. I loved when you said that God has a plan, the right timing. We don't know what is good and what is bad. So can you tell me about this part since you already illustrated the relation with what you do in compliant mechanism? But I'm curious about this foundation of the face. Now, thank you. And thank you for uh, bringing that up because uh, at the beginning, you asked me to define myself. And then right after I did, I was thinking of the audience, right, of who was listening. And then, uh, and and then right after we started in another topic, it's like, oh, we missed we missed the most important part of how I, of who I am, and that is and that and that is really, uh, you know, I as my faith, right, and my uh, belief in in God, it, it it affects everything I do, how I treat people, uh, why I'm doing this podcast, right? It's not because. Uh, I want to go and show off the cool stuff in compliant mechanisms because, hey, you know what? People may benefit. There's people listening to this that may benefit from the things that, you know, uh, that we've done. And we hope that that's the case and that the things that we do can help make the world a better place. And and I'll, I'll tell you, you know, even on the Mark Rober project where I said the stress that we had, but I'll tell you, I had as much uh, as many little pieces of inspiration or spiritual guidance on that project as any I've ever had, and which really surprised me because we're just making the world's smallest Nerf guns, but we 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 end up in these in these situations where we're having problems and and feel that that spiritual guidance, and and it it was. Uh, and many times in my life uh, of feeling that that help and that guidance and. And, and also, you know, again, just feeling of how, how I should treat people, what we should be doing to help uh, the world be a better place. And, and, you know, I mentioned how important it is to work with my students and things and, and to give them those experiences. And that's, that's also a big part of, of all of this. And so, uh, and, and I think there's more people in the world that, that feel that, and we probably just don't talk about it as much or as, as we should publicly. And, and thank you for, thank you for asking. It was really beautiful. And I deeply appreciate these talks. It's just, we need more of that. I think I, I'm so grateful to listen to it and find it also. So thank you. I don't know if you have any final words like say people listening or anyone interested in complying mechanism, any final words? Well, first of all, thanks for, thanks for the invitation. And and just keeping our minds open on the things that, that can be done. And it's amazing how many things we've seen that are uh, non-intuitive, things that, that we can do. And I think being open, uh, open-minded and also open to the feelings and inspiration that can come in different ways and, and moving forward and, and, and doing good things that will help mankind. So thank you. Mm -hmm.